Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. New episode this week, and obviously the main thing to talk about is what everybody is seeing in the news. It's the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia, and uh, it's well underway now. And as we all know, uh, we're watching the Ukrainians are standing up as strongly as they can, but the Ukraine's slowly being destroyed. Civilians are being killed and in pretty significant numbers now. Civilians are being targeted, despite what Russia is telling us. But much of what the Ukrainians are doing in response is really of guerrilla warfare. I mean, they've got some conventional weapons, that's for sure. But they can't possibly fight Russia on an even playing field. There's no chance. Russia's too strong and has too many weapons and too many advanced weapons as it is. So this is what the Ukrainians are left to do. And they're doing pretty well. They're inflicting some serious damage to the uh, in, uh, invading Russians, and they're killing a lot of them. Uh, and they're certainly slowing things down. But I, I you know, do believe that this is inevitable. I think that if Putin wants the Ukraine, he's going to get it, especially when there's really no world response. Now, the world, or what I mean by the world, I mean the West, is rushing to get weapons to the Ukraine. You're reading about it now, but it's a little bit late. President Biden warned for weeks that the Russians were about to invade. He was correct about that. And uh, everybody saw, uh, read what he was saying, heard what he was saying. Troops were massed on the border, hundreds of thousands of them. And why is the West sending weapons in now? Maybe if the West had sent the Ukraine weapons, I don't know, a month ago, significant weapons, that could have deterred Russia. This is an unprovoked attack by a madman. There's really no other way about it. The average Russian on the street wants nothing to do with this. They don't want the Ukraine. They don't even care. I mean, these are their brothers. These are you know, former neighbors when the Soviet Union was intact. It's just some old KGB spook who wants to reform, wants to remake the Soviet Union and bring the Ukraine back. Now, Biden is left with very few choices at this point. America clearly is not going to fight this war for the Ukraine, nor should it. He can sanction Russia. And as I'll talk about, even the sanctions that he's employing are, are somewhat limited. The question is, is, how do we get here? How did we get here? And I'm going to give you some background because I think that it makes sense. Whatever's happening today didn't just start today. And I'll hearken back to 2012 when Obama, President Obama, then President Obama, said during the Syrian civil war, when Assad was slaughtering his own people, that if Assad gassed them, if he gassed his people, America would step in. Now, apparently, gassing people to death is a lot worse than dropping barrel bombs on their heads, as Assad was doing as well. But Obama wanted to appear tough, even if he didn't have to actually be tough. So naturally, of course, Assad saw yet another weak leftist American president, and he then went about and gassed his people in 2013. Children, innocents, and naturally Obama did nothing. He was actually about to order airstrikes in Syria, but he was terrified to. He had no support at all from abroad, from the EU. Uh, there was no offers of any help uh, to help him with Assad. England refused to help. France refused to help. He would have had to stand up to Assad on his own, you know, a maniac gassing children, you know, it probably would have been a, a good person to stand up against. It's not like Assad was some kind of, uh, was leading some kind of superpower in Syria. And when you're dealing with Muslim terrorists, you can't expect them to behave like humans, which is what Obama surely thought. 
They have no problem killing children. They have no problem killing their own people. So Obama figured, you know, look, I'll go ahead and do this. and I may make things worse and get us into some kind of quagmire. So he then sought Obama, the, the support of uh, Americans, because he knew, as I said, that Muslim terrorists using gas on their own people was wrong because he wanted to stop it. But of course, he didn't have the balls to just do it himself, and he wanted the approval of America, or at least our allies, something. He then tried to send the hot potato to Congress to get them to support an attack on Syria, so he could at least say that Americans wanted the airstrikes, and Congress would not do it. And it was a bipartisan affair, mostly, but there were more Republicans, and the reason why they didn't want Assad to get bombed had nothing to do with the fact they might hate Muslim terrorists who were poison gassing their own people. They just wanted to do anything they could to stop Obama from anything he wanted to do. Obviously, we should have bombed Syria and established some deterrence because there's a lot of people watching when things like this happen. When you have a madman doing bad things to people, there are other madmen that are watching quietly and figuring, hey, I'll remember this for the future. Instead, Obama and his team of cowards, and is led by the biggest coward of all, Secretary of State John Kerry, with the fake the patrician accent that he conjures up when he needs to appear that he's serious. They actually tried to suggest that they would actually do something to stop this crazed Assad. Kerry actually publicly said that America should conduct, and I'm quoting him, unbelievably small airstrikes. That's his quotes, not mine. Again, the thinking was that attacking a crazed Muslim terrorist, that if you finish him off, you may just have more crazed lunatics filling the void. And I suppose they didn't want to start that. So they started basically offering up to Assad very small response just to save face. They didn't want to start, as I said, uh, some kind of disaster that America would get caught in. So, you know, that's really the nature of the beast when you're dealing with religious lunatics. It's not like just killing Assad or bombing their, a few palaces would restore any kind of order. So, of course, we ended up doing nothing and we let a Muslim terrorist gas his own people. As I said, we should have just simply bombed the shit out of them and let Syria figure out what's left. There's a lot of opposition there, and there's certainly some allies in the area that wanted to help the opposition out. We should have just bombed the shit out of them and explained to the world, this is what happens when you do crazy things like this. But of course we didn't. But Obama did one thing. He found a, a way out of the pickle that he found himself in by talking to Russia and taking up Russia's offer. Of course, a good-natured offer. You know that Russia's only about good-natured things. They offered to go into Syria and control Assad to dismantle his chemical weapons factories. Syria did not have Russia as an ally back then in that area. I mean, they might have been an ally, but they, weren't, they had no footprint in Syria. So Obama welcomed Russia into the area, the most dangerous area in the world. This is how stupid liberals are. Russia went in and now has a foothold in the Middle East on the bad side. They emboldened Assad. They gave him advanced weaponry to use against Israel. They let Iran into the area as well. Now Israel has Iran on its border, and they're arming Hezbollah on another border with Israel. Russia has a giant foothold in the Middle East, and America retreated. That, that was not a smart move. It was not. And you now you have to look at how Russia handled the Ukraine and look back to that period. You've got a crazed Russian leader who's invading a sovereign nation, an ally of ours. Putin uh, knew that uh, 
Biden is in charge now, a coward much like Obama. He knew full well that Trump is an idiot, but as crazy as Trump is, he's as crazy as Putin is. Putin had invaded uh, Crimea, uh, which is a, a part of the Ukraine, and Obama did next to nothing. Very you know weak sanctions in response. Crimea was annexed by Russia. It was stolen. So when we should have been supporting our allies over there, Obama was appeasing Putin. Two years after Obama let uh, Russia into Syria, he was overheard speaking to the then Russian president Medvedev in December of 2015. This was on a hot mic. It was caught. And telling him that after the 2016 election, he would have, quote, more flexibility to deal with Russia on issues of a European missile defense shield, which Russia didn't want. This is his quote. This is my last election. After my election, I'll have more flexibility. He wanted Medvedev to relay this to Putin. The following, and I quote, quote, on all these issues, but particularly the missile defense, this can be solved, but it's important for him meaning Putin, to give me space. That's what Obama said. Medvedev said on the hot mic, quote, I understand I will transmit this information to Vladimir. Putin was afraid that Europe would actually stand up against him with his missile shield, which means they would guard European countries against Russian aggression. And what ended up happening, Obama bent over for Putin and assured him that he would not let that happen. And then you have Trump that came into office. So Putin just waited Trump out, waited for Trump to be removed. Trump was defeated, and Putin sees this weak clown that Biden in office. And remember, just so you remember how weak Biden is, this is not like a new thing. When Biden told the world during the run-up to the 2020 election that Putin was terrified of him, he actually said that. No one is afraid of Joe Biden. You know, maybe some people that write good speeches and are afraid that he's going to plagiarize them, but nobody's afraid of, of Joe Biden. I mean, he's a leftist clown that has been wrong on every single foreign policy decision over the last 40 years. Imagine flipping a coin, okay, 40 times. You need it to land on heads one time to win. Biden flips it 40 times and it lands on tails every single time. It's almost impossible to be wrong every single time. But the reason is he's an idiot and he's a coward. I mean, this is not an intellectually bright guy. Nobody's ever accused him of being intellectual. But when you're weak, you're a coward and you're stupid, you end up being wrong every single time. You don't get any of them right. I mean, who else would be a politician for 50 years? This is a guy who's never had a job in his life and he's telling people what to do. This is a guy who's got Hunter Biden as his son who he claims is the smartest person that he's ever met. So, of course, he's an idiot. And, of course, Putin sees America as weak. The left in insisted upon shutting down our country for two years during the pandemic, with the help of Trump at first. Let's not let him off the hook. We just kept printing money to keep our economy afloat while everything was shut down. Biden gets into office and does all that he could to convince people not to work. Got to stay home and stay safe. Got to stay safe. Must be safe. Must wear your masks. Don't leave your home. We'll keep giving you money. And the leftist big city leaders are doing the same stuff. Just keep printing that money. No need to work. We got you covered. Well, guess what happens when you keep printing money and you don't produce anything? You have inflation, massive inflation, the likes of which had not been seen in America for 40 years. Putin sees all this. He sees how deeply unpopular Biden is. Biden is at 37% approval rating right now. Nobody gets elected with 37% uh, 
approval rating. He's, he's the worst president in history after one year. He sees how weak Biden is, uh, the way he handled Afghanistan, the withdrawal. His, he, he didn't do anything. He just ran out. He didn't plan. He just ran out, left our allies. Putin sees all this. He's not a stupid man. He sees Biden on day one of his presidency canceling the Keystone Pipeline from Canada. He's towing the leftist line. Why would he be listening to leftists? Do they control the party? Apparently so. He's, he's towing the leftist line of trying to kill the gas and oil industries. Everything's got to be electric and clean and green. So no new drilling, no new federal oil and gas lease sales on public lands and waters. Too much cost to the climate is what he keeps saying. The climate, because that's all that matters, is the climate. Forget our security. Climate. That's where the real war is. This is all these idiots care about when they're not worrying about trans rights or making sure that transvestites can serve in the army and have their sex change operations paid for by Uncle Sam while they're serving. China and Russia are plotting to take over the world, and America has given its educational system, its military, to the far-left freaks whose only concerns are climate issues and, and trans rights. And, and this is how moronic the leftist leaders of America are. Uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry, who is now our climate envoy, we have a climate envoy, was interviewed on BBC Arabic last week. During the invasion by Russia of the Ukraine, he expressed hope that Putin would help the world stay on track with fighting climate issues. He wants Putin, while he's slaughtering people in the Ukraine, to be concerned about climate change issues. This is what the American left cares about. Russia should be a pariah. We have to isolate them because they're bad by slaughtering people, but we need you to watch your emissions as you're slaughtering innocent children. In the middle of this invasion, hear this, our new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, urged Russia to pressure Iran on the nukes deal. So we're trying to, they're invading our ally, Russia. They're slaughtering innocent people, and we're begging them to help us with one of their crazed Muslim terror allies to reach this lame deal on nukes with Iran. This is how pathetic liberals are, and this is why I'm no longer part of them. I was when I was much younger, probably up until around 9-11, so it wasn't, I wasn't that young. So Putin knew this was a perfect time to invade the Ukraine. He knew how dependent Europe is on Russian oil how dependent America is too, even though we are the largest oil producer and largest natural gas, gas producer in the world. Russia is the world's third largest oil producer and second largest natural gas producer. But those fossil fuels for Russia contributed to 36% of Moscow's budget in 2021, or $119 billion in revenues. And although we're the leader our oil costs closely track the global benchmark prices of oil, which would soar without Russian supplies. This is why Biden said that any sanctions that he's inflicting upon Russia, and he was very careful to say, will not fight them physically, but any sanctions that he's imposing on Russia are specifically designated to allow Russia to continue to sell their energy. How sick is that? So it's okay to slaughter people as long as they can continue to sell their gas because it may cost us at the pump. Quote, our sanctions are not designed to cause any disruption to the current flow of energy from Russia to the world. That's what our deputy national security advisor said. Now, global energy prices have surged during the past year 
after the pandemic triggered this bust or boom cycle for the oil and gas sector for the companies. There was less demand at the beginning of the pandemic. Nobody was driving. Everybody was staying safe in their homes as the world shut down. And now there's been this this explosion as a boom in demand left uh, the market short of supply. And I would say is, you know, look at your electric bill, your gas prices. They've gone up, up, up. And if Biden messes with Russia's gas and oil exports, gas will be $10 a gallon at the pumps. And what do you think happens in midterm elections in November with a deeply unpopular president as it is, who's responsible for ridiculous inflation as it is and high gas prices? There's no way that he's going to achieve anything in November. It's already looking horrible for Democrats there. Biden doesn't have much choice if he wants to have any power at all come November. And for a leftist scumbag like Biden, all he cares about is power. He's not concerned about people getting slaughtered in uh, the Ukraine. So he doesn't really have a lot of choices. But the choices that he did have, of course, he screwed up because that's what Joe Biden says. And don't quote me, uh, quote Barack Obama, who said, whatever Biden touches, he fucks up. Those are his words, not mine. And I, again, why didn't he at least arm the Ukraine months ago when he saw the Russian troop build up on its border? It's not like anyone expects, as I said, Americans to fight for the Ukraine. We won't even fight Muslim terrorists anymore, and they want to destroy America. The Russians don't really directly want to destroy us. I mean, they do, but they're not going to fight us. He could have armed the Ukraine. And Putin knew exactly how pathetic Europe is, knew they wouldn't do anything. One of their sanctions against Russia was to exclude them from the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm sure uh, Putin is just devastated by this. Now, this is how stupid Biden is. And again, I hate that it's a one-trick pony here, but Biden actually relied on China. He trusted China to help stop Russia here. If you can believe this, a country which gave us the coronavirus, killed a million Americans, and Biden, the globalist imbecile that he is, trusted China with our intelligence on the Russia-Ukraine situation. Biden didn't trust the president of the Ukraine with this information, an ally, but he shared it with China, who then shared it with Russia, betraying us naturally, because that's what China does. Somehow Biden spent three months trying to persuade China to tell Putin not to invade the Ukraine. Naturally, China denied all this and claimed that Putin would not invade and that the U.S. was just trying to sow discord. That's why if you watch the news and you saw an interview with Biden on Thursday when he was asked if he was working with China to try to isolate Russia, he said, quote, I'm not prepared to comment on that at the moment. He didn't want to have to admit how dumb he was by trusting China since November. Now, remember, this is the same Joe Biden that right after September 11th, 2001, when he was just a senator, he proposed giving Iran $200 million as a gesture of good faith. So basically, Muslim terrorists just killed thousands of Americans, and we should give other Muslim terrorists $200 million as a gesture of good faith. Quote, no strings attached, he said. And then he said, I'm groping here, meaning that he was trying to grope in the dark. But the truth is, he's a fucking groper. And maybe that was just the Freudian slip. I don't know. Anyway. For 40 years, he's wrong on everything, everything relating to foreign policy. At some point, liberals are going to realize that there are bad people in the world who want to do us harm. China, Russia, Iran, they're an axis of evil now, and they want one thing, really, is to destroy America. You cannot rely on any of them. You cannot support them. You need to stop buying stuff from them. 
We are so weak and continue to rely so much on China, which is why we allowed them to kill a million Americans with impunity. We need to isolate them, stop supporting them. We need to become independent. We have the world's largest economy. We can't import Russian or Chinese products anymore, period. We've got to break away from them. I don't care if it's isolationist. What choice do we have? To trust these people? It can't be done overnight. I get it. But it has to be done. We've known this for decades now. And we also know that Putin is insane. He threatened military and political consequences, his words, against Finland and Sweden on Friday if they attempted to join NATO. We talked about this last week a bit. It's the same reason he gave for invading the Ukraine, basically, that he doesn't want one of his neighbors to be under an umbrella with other allies from the West right on his border. NATO should immediately accept Finland and Sweden and call Putin's bluff. At some point, crazy world actors need to be stopped because if you keep letting them get away with lunacy, they get bigger, stronger, and bolder. When does Putin stop if we just let him do this? Some European nations like Lithuania, uh, Latvia, uh, Estonia were ruled by Moscow for much of the past 200 years, uh, first under the Russian Empire and then under the Soviet Union. If Putin wants to bring the Ukraine back into the Soviet Empire, why won't he also try to get Lithuania back, Latvia, Estonia? How about Poland? The world needs to stand up to Russia now and stop the lunacy, or else we're going to be on our knees for them the way we were or about to be for Iran once we give this ridiculous nuke deal to them. We keep on letting them get away with bad behavior, attack our allies, attack us. They keep on getting stronger, marching towards a nuke. And it's all because of our cowardice. The pain that we would have to go through now averts disaster later. It's true. It's true. Now, back to Trump. He's a lunatic, which is why Putin stayed put during his four years in office. And America agrees. Just look at the polls. Despite the left's attempt to blame, if you can believe, blame the Ukraine invasion on Trump's relationship with Putin. That's what they tried. America's not buying it. 62% in a poll of Americans said that Putin does not invade with Trump in office. 59% said Biden's weakness made Russia invade the Ukraine. America, Americans know what Joe Biden is. I mean, everybody, you just look at the guy, his teeth are falling out of his head. He's trying to do that squinty eye thing to look like he's Clint Eastwood. He's got shit in his pants and his diaper. No one is afraid of him. Trump claims that he threatened to hit Moscow if Russia invaded the Ukraine. I don't know what to believe. Could have, might not have. Certainly Putin was afraid of Trump. And I'm not a, a fan of Trump. But, of course, Trump calling Putin a genius and claiming that his invasion into the Ukraine was wonderful, just the other day he said it, is moronic and, and typical of Trump. He can't just take the win and, and be silent. He's got to open up his idiotic mouth. Again, our country is no longer one that wishes to win wars and do the ugly things that are needed to protect us. And it really all started going downhill after World War II. We dropped two atomic bombs on a crazed suicide bombing enemy, Japan, and we killed 150,000 Japanese. Liberals started crying after and did all they could to punish America for doing this for decades. No longer are we allowed to win wars and do what needs to be done. We need to fight proportionally. Everybody's got to have a medal. Everybody's got to have a trophy. Now, I have no problem with the dropping of those two bombs, you know, in retrospect. Estimates are that if we hadn't ended the war, then with Japan, by dropping those two atom bombs on them, upwards of 30 million people would have been killed otherwise as the war raged on for years. 
but we broke the will of Japan by doing that, our enemy, by dropping the bombs. And America back then supported it because we weren't a leftist shithole with military men wearing dresses and high heels and nail polish back then. It's a different generation. We fought to win, period. In the years following those bombs being dropped, a wave of revisionist histories emerged that just condemned the use of the atomic bombs as illegal or unjustifiable. And that's just not true. It's dumb. Our enemies do not fight proportionally. So we keep playing around with them until they become stronger and stronger and stronger and can inflict real damage to us. Israel's doing it right now and has for years with Hamas and Hezbollah. Guess what? They keep getting stronger. Their uh, rockets keep getting more accurate and they're going further into Israel. Should have been stopped at the beginning. Absolutely. And now, uh, you know, we're on our knees uh, for Russia, it seems, doesn't it? What this invasion of the Ukraine by a lunatic enemy of Russia has shown is that enemies like Iran need to be stopped today. No more deals. With Russia, stop letting them fly their commercial airlines into Western countries. Stop pretending that this is a minor deal. That's what Biden said a few weeks ago, that he would be okay with a minor incursion into the Ukraine. No, a minor incursion is still an invasion. People are dying. They need to be isolated. Don't let them anywhere near us. Isolate them. Isolate China at some point. China is part of this as well. I know we can't do everything today, but we need to figure it out. We need to freeze every last dollar that Russia has in banks that we can control, not just America, but all the West, Europe. Today, remove Russia from the SWIFT international banking system. They'll get around it eventually with China's help, but it's a start. It'll make it hard for them to get paid uh, for their exports. Stop relying on them for anything, especially with Iran. They can't be trusted. Cut them off at the knees. Let China figure it out. Let them be China's problem. Stop treating these countries as rational actors. Eventually, I'm hoping the Russian people will rise up against Putin and hopefully, you know, not that I'm suggesting anything, but somebody will uh, Lee Harvey him a bit. Someone should. We can't be held hostage by lunatics anymore. We need to impose our will instead of uh, being liberal shitheads and letting maniacs push us around. And for God's sake, stop letting our concern about being reelected determine how we safeguard Americans in the future. America is more important than selfish partisan politics. It's true. Got to sacrifice a little bit here. On another issue, this week, uh, Joe Biden made his Supreme Court nomination in the midst of Russia slaughtering our allies in the Ukraine. Biden thought he could get some good press by nominating a black female justice for the Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown Jackson. And I'm, I'm laughing about this because the MAGA types are just screaming. They're up in arms over uh, Brown Jackson, the former public defender, a far leftist judge, uh, getting the nod. And somehow they don't blame their master, Donald Trump, for ensuring that this judge is going to get confirmed. Had Trump not told voters in Georgia to stay home and not vote in the two Senate elections after he lost the White House in November of 2020, the Senate would be controlled by Republicans right now. So enjoy your public defender as the next Supreme Court justice, a woman who represented a Muslim terrorist held at Guantanamo Bay. Now, for what it's worth, I'm a defense lawyer. I'm not necessarily against her because of that. I mean, for God's sake, uh, uh, the Guantanamo Bay terrorist 
is entitled to a defense. Somebody's got to represent them. doesn't make you a bad person if you represent them. I've got a, a bigger problem, perhaps, with her politics. Remember, most federal judges are former federal prosecutors, not defense lawyers. So what do you think happens when you go to trial when every judge is a former prosecutor? You don't get a fair trial. And why should the, the Supreme Court not have any defense lawyers on it? Why should Sam Alito, you have guys that are former U.S. attorneys for entire districts. Why should they be on it and not any defense lawyers? Anyway, we're going to take a break in a little bit, but I just have to, uh, I'm not quite done. I, I talk about Eric Adams a lot and I apologize, but I, I just, you know, I, I just can't really help it. Um, he's the New York City mayor. He's made some news this week. Whoa, sorry about that. Um, he made some, um, I got to stop this. He made some news this week by claiming that the homeless aren't dangerous. He also said that the indoor mask mandates will be lifted so that Kyrie Irving can play home games. But of course, he didn't lift it. Uh, he also um, said the restaurant vaccine mandate in New York City will be lifted, except he hasn't. Um, he said he's going to. I'm sorry. It just keeps on going automatically. It's, uh, you're, it's just coming out anytime you mention Eric Adams. Um, he, he said he's going to, to fix crime, but of course, he hasn't done a thing yet. Anyway, um, he did ask for New Yorkers not to attack Russian people in the streets in response to Russians' invasion uh, of the Ukraine. Because, of course, when you see a guy, a white guy, speaking Russian in the street, you immediately know that he's Russian and not Ukrainian because everybody can tell the difference. Mayor Adams uh, did, however, accomplish something else. He hired three ministers with long histories of homophobic remarks into his administration, which, of course, uh, you can imagine, angered the LGBTQXYZABC community. And, and I have just a question. Look, I don't want to stereotype the guy, but why is he always wearing those shiny sport jackets? It makes him look like he's a pimp. And he's talking about being at the, the club. He's got like nine bracelets on. I want you to look the next time you see a picture of him. He's got like nine bracelets, a silk pocket square. Does he need all nine bracelets? Does one or two not get the job done? I, look, I don't want our mayor to be a giant doofus like Bill de Blasio, but I also don't want Huggy Bear as our mayor talking about the club and Covassier. I don't need it. Just get the fucking job done. Stop the crime. Get the masks off and stop trying to, to big pimping it. Enough. Be back after a break. We're going to talk about one of my cases, Jeffrey Lickman, Beyond the Legal Limit. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm going to talk about an old client of mine named John Rufo. He's been in the news lately. There's been some podcasts and some TV shows are coming up about him. He was running a small company, a computer company based in Midtown Manhattan that sold and serviced IBM computers. This is late 80s, early 90s. And he, is, he and his co-conspirator conducted a $350 million fraud on American banks in the early 90s. John Rufo and Ed Reiners, that was his co-conspirator, concocted a scheme which involved soliciting various banks in an attempt to secure financing for this fictitious Project Star operation that was being run by Philip Morris. Now, they pitched this project to bank executives as this top secret operation for Philip Morris to develop smokeless cigarettes. 
Rufo's company, CCS, was to provide the computer hardware and consulting for five offshore offices, and they were going to work on this project, supposedly. Ed Reiners had been a Philip Morris executive before being laid off, and he still had his Philip Morris credentials. This allowed them to forge documents and add authenticity to the scheme because of the Philip Morris connection. The scheme included confidentiality agreements due to the supposed sensitivity of the project. The banks were to deal only with Reiners, and they could not contact Philip Morris directly. It helped that Ed Reiners, as I said, who had worked for Philip Morris, dealt with these banks when he was working for them, so he could defraud them. They knew him and trusted him. They just didn't know that he had left Philip Morris. He had been laid off. To sign the first loan agreement, they needed a corporate stamp from Philip Morris and the signature of a Philip Morris executive. Getting the corporate stamp obviously was not an issue. They just went to somewhere in lower Manhattan and had them create this stamp for Philip Morris, and there was no questions asked. But to get the signature from a company executive, they posed as employees of a radio station and phoned a Philip Morris executive and told her that she had won a free dinner at a pricey Manhattan restaurant, if you can believe this. They selected this little-known employee, an assistant corporate secretary named Diane McAdams from a list of company officers. Somehow she bought it and she signed the release uh, form, sending it back to them, and that gave her a signature of an executive at Philip Morris. Naturally, as soon as Signet Bank saw that, saw the stamp and saw the signature, they sent the first $25 million over to Rufo and Reiners, and you know the race was on. $350 million later, the banks had not seen a single computer that they had paid for. A bank, one of the banks, contacted Diane McAdams, and she told them that it was not her signature on that document, and that Ed Reiners didn't even work at Philip Morris anymore. So the bank contacted Reiners and said they wanted a meeting with him and Diane McAdams, and Reiners and Rufo convinced one of Rufo's employees just this completely innocent woman to pose as Diane McAdams at the meeting. She was tricked. The woman who pretended to be McAdams and Reiners were arrested by the FBI at the meeting, and Reiners immediately started to cooperate. Uh, the charges um, were dropped against this woman. Obviously, she had nothing to do with it, and the government figured it out pretty quickly. And Rufo was arrested soon thereafter. Reiners ended up getting about 17 years in a sentence, and even with his cooperation, he had to serve almost nine years in jail, which is a long time. Rufo had a lawyer at the time, not me, who didn't do criminal trials. And a week before the trial, he pled guilty to every single count, all 160 of them. But there were still $21 million missing the government couldn't find. They just couldn't find it. Rufo and Reiner said, you know, we don't know where it is. It was lost. You know, we blew it. And that's when I got involved in the case. Rufo wanted to withdraw his guilty plea due to ineffective assistance of his then lawyer. He hired my old boss, Jerry Shargell, and soon thereafter, he couldn't pay Jerry anymore. And there I am, age 33, and I'm representing the biggest bank fraudster in American history. I was young. It was a little scary. We made the motion to withdraw the guilty plea, and it failed because it's a very difficult thing to do. Once you plead guilty in front of a federal judge and he makes you swear to God that you're telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you then have to uh, admit your guilt under oath. And in order to get a motion like this granted, a lot of things have to go right. And one of the things is you have to say that you're actually innocent. And there was just no way that he could say he was actually innocent. The evidence was too overwhelming. And I told him that it wouldn't make a difference if he had, except that if the motion failed, 
I wanted to at least have a chance to get a break from the judge at the sentencing. And by continuing to claim that you're innocent up until sentencing, that's not the way to get any kind of break, especially after you pled guilty, because the judge will say, well, you committed perjury when you pled guilty. Now you're saying you're not, which is it? And it was a horrible deal, plea deal that he had. He uh, not only pled to every single count that was against him, but he didn't even get the full acceptance of responsibility for pleading guilty. When the federal sentencing guidelines are computed, it's a number of points, the seriousness of the crime, the amount of money involved, and you can get some points removed. The more points, the higher sentence that the judge should give you. You can get some points removed if you plead guilty. You can get three points. Although because he pled guilty so late, he was only entitled to two levels off. So his guideline range for the judge to sentence him was 20 to 24 years. And the government wanted 24 years. They wanted the high end. So now it's a few months later. I have to fly down to Richmond, Virginia with John Rufo, October of 1998. And it was like my cousin Vinny. I'm a very young lawyer. I'm only, I guess, seven years out as a lawyer. And I'm in like my cousin Vinny land. Really, everybody was Southern and I'm there you know, with some dude from Queens who stole $350 million. And it's felt a little, it was a little intimidating. Rufo at sentencing apologized to everyone, but mostly his wife. He apologized to his wife and his wife's family, who were mostly elderly people, many military veterans. And they had all posted their small homes in Queens for bail to get Rufo released when he was arrested. And that was ironic, looking back on it, what Rufo was saying. At the sentencing, I, I really just begged for mercy. I begged for leniency. I told the judge that because Rufo, this was not a crime of violence, 24 years was so high. You know, back then, if you can believe, in the late 90s, people weren't getting sentences like this for fraud. It just The murderers were getting it. No one got 20 years for a financial fraud case. And then it, it popped into my head. This is, what I was, this is the kind of person I was at 33. A little different, I suppose, than I am now. I brought up a book that I had read in high school. James Joyce's, such a boring book, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. It was Joyce's first book, and it was nearly indecipherable and just so boring. But I remembered in the book one thing. There was a description of what the eternity of hell was like. And I said to the judge, and I just got the transcript recently, and I read it, and I was shocked. I compared the 20 to 24-year jail sentence that Rufo was facing Imagine this, the same thing, the same description that was in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And I actually, I didn't plagiarize, I didn't pinch, I did tell the judge I was talking about that book. Imagine a, a sandy beach that's a million miles wide and long, it's fine white sand on it, a million miles deep and a million miles high. Just all you see is sand, wherever you can go, a million miles every way. And every million years, a tiny bird comes to the beach and removes one grain of sand. One grain. Eternity is when all that sand is gone. Millions and millions and billions and trillions of years, and just a few grains of sand are gone on a, banch, on a, a, a sandy beach that deep and wide. Somehow, I, I think the judge was just amused by me. He laughed. I don't know why. He wasn't funny. And he gave Rufo 17 and a half years which is about the same as the guy who cooperated against them. On 17 and a half years, he'd have to do probably around 14 or so. You know, not so much worse than the guy that cooperated. And I was thrilled because 17 and a half years is obviously a lot less than 20 to 24 years that he was facing. 
The judge then ordered Rufo to be removed from the courtroom in handcuffs and, you know, begin his jail sentence right then. He just got this heavy sentence. And I remembered the one thing that Rufo's prior lawyer had done as part of the plea deal. He had gotten one concession from the government that Rufo could self-surrender after he was sentenced. Now, we knew that Rufo was going to get a lot of time, so if he was going to run, he would have run well before the sentencing because he knew what he was facing. But this promise was not even on the record. It was privately done. The prosecutor said, fine, fine, fine. I won't object to it. Now, he can't guarantee it because it's up to the judge, but basically the promise was that Rufo would be able to go to jail by himself, by car, and not be remanded and taken in the back. The judge was shocked that this deal had been made and asked the prosecutor, you know, is this true? Did you make this deal? And I'm just standing there watching, thinking, how in the hell am I going to get back to the airport? Because I have no sense of direction and Rufo knew how to get there. We did, this is before GPS. This is before really the internet was popular or at least used a lot. How am I going to do all that with Rufo in handcuffs? And anyway, Rufo is in handcuffs at the time when the judge asks the prosecutor and the prosecutor shrugs and says, yeah, I suppose I did make that deal. And the judge looks at me and I make the argument, look, if he was going to run, he certainly wouldn't be doing it now. He would have done it six months ago or, or while the case was pending. Judge shook his head and said, you know, remove and the bailiff's name was Kevin. Kevin, Marshal Kevin, remove the handcuffs. That's what he said. And I'm on the way back to the airport with Rufo. And as I said, I'm thrilled. Uh, I'm going to keep him out just for another month because as I said, there was no way I was getting back to that airport on my own. And I was giddy happy because I got 17 and a half years instead of the 20 to 24 that he should have gotten. He still had to serve 85% of it, but Rufo was not happy. And he looks at me, he's like, what are you so happy about? I still have to serve 17 years. So anyway, he was required to surrender to the designated federal prison in New Jersey. I think it was Fairton on November 9th, 1998. I said goodbye to him. I called him up a couple of days before, said, good luck. Let me know how you are when you get there. He turned in the electronic monitoring bracelet he had on at the courthouse and he went to prison on November 9th, except one thing, he didn't. The next day I received a phone call from the U.S. Marshal. I had no idea about any of this. Where's John Rufo? They screamed into the phone. I had no idea. I called his wife, Linda. I hadn't spoken to her once during the entire representation. And she said to me, she had no idea that he was even sentenced. I'm like, what? How did you not know this? I'm like, he pled guilty, you know, months ago and he was sentenced a month ago. She says, I have no idea. He didn't tell me that he was sentenced. Remember, the internet was not a big deal then. You couldn't just check on the internet about John Rufo and find out that it had been reported that he was sentenced and was scheduled to surrender like in, I don't know, 500 periodicals, news sources on the internet. I then got a subpoena from the government, from the prosecutor in the case, to testify in a grand jury trying to find John Rufo. Like, I had something to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. Like, I'm going to risk my career for John Rufo? For what? For nothing. Stupid. Of course I wouldn't. Eventually, they came to their senses and they uh, withdrew the subpoena. The only evidence the government had of Rufo at that point was a picture of him at an ATM in Queens on the day that he was supposed to surrender. You know how they have cameras there at the ATM. He withdrew money and he just vanished, left the rental car there at the airport and was gone. The government did not take it well. They moved to forfeit every home of every one of Rufo's relatives who posted them for bail, elderly people, sick people, veterans. 
it was awful what they did to that family and it wasn't their fault but you know what's right is right they felt that if they took the homes maybe rufo would feel bad and come home which of course is ridiculous because rufo was never going to come home he had to know there was a possibility they'd do that i was interviewed for a 60 minutes piece about john rufo which aired just a few months later in february of 1999 just months after he vanished at the end of the piece, I was asked by Steve Croft if I believed Rufo would be found. And, you know, I thought about it for a second, and I said, quote, if I had to bet, I'd say no. Why? Because he's smarter than the people that are looking for him. Tick, 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 tick. That's how the piece ended. Now, I was on a uh, federal death penalty case when that 60 Minutes episode came out, and uh, I was pretty excited. It was my first time I was in the news and some kind of good big way i don't know if it was good but it was nice to be on 60 minutes i thought it was cool and one of the courtroom marshals came up to me and told me that they loved the piece and absolutely you were great on it they said except at the end uh, when you said that and i found out later that it was us the marshals that are looking for rufo and not the fbi huh whatever it's been 23 years john rufo has still not been found he's been supposedly spotted they get tips all the time He's not found. And if you walk into any federal courthouse and you go to the U.S. Marshal's top 10 wanted list, John Rufo is still on there. There is a podcast that I believe ABC did that you can find. I don't even know what it was called, but you can certainly Google it and find it. It was a bunch of episodes and had interviews with his wife and me and a bunch of other people. And there's going to be a TV show coming out soon about it. But anyway, that's the story of John Rufo. That was probably the first big client that I did on my own, even though it wasn't my client, but it was exciting. And the truth is, I hope they never find Rufo because he got away with it. Not that I'm for crime. I'm not for crime, but I'm certainly uh, against the government at times. And to watch the misery they went through by fumbling, letting Rufo self-surrender, I'm sorry. I enjoyed it then. It's 23 years later. I enjoy it now. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. See you next week.